RadioInfluence.com. All right, welcome to another edition of the Rock Stops here. This one is a little bit different. I got to I got to admit. And you know, the the theme obviously is former, current players, coaches, even entertainers that have made it to the top. What about the journey to get there? How hard is it to stay at the top? And life after you are done playing, performing on the big stage. That's what we do here. Welcome to another edition. Now, this one today is very interesting. What he has done, no one in America has ever done. Being a police detective full time and then on weekends working for ESPN as a college football analyst. All right. That's my guest. I'm going to get to him right away. I just want to say, isn't it? How are you doing? Are we not getting back to to all, you know, to kind of like life before before the pandemic? And, you know, I just got to say, it, it's official this week. The NFL has come out. 30 of 32 teams will have full capacity in NFL stadiums this fall. 65, 75, 80,000, however many your team, their facility, their stadium holds full capacity and fans are going to pay for the tickets to go, you know, and the the reason I'm bringing this up, I'll never forget. I was doing a radio show with Martin Gramatica, a former NFL kicker, most notably Buccaneers, Super Bowl winner. And when this all went down a year ago, year and year and a couple of months ago, we both thought, I wonder if we'll ever even see a full 65,000 seat stadium again. I don't know if we'll ever see a concert in a stadium that will sell out. We'll probably never see that again. I remember Martina and I saying, we'll probably never, ever shake hands again. It'll just be a fist bump. Or an elbow bump. And isn't it funny how we revert back? You you just end up going back. And I found myself, even doing these podcasts, I'll go to my guest and uh, I'll meet him. And at first I do, I stick my fist out. He'll stick his fist out. Boom. We end up having a long conversation. We do the pie. We get up. How you doing, man? You give almost a bro hug. You give the handshake. And people coming out handshaking. I had two relatives through marriage visiting uh, us here at the house and both, you know, we, there was a relative that got COVID right in the beginning and it was, Ooh, I mean, an intensive care unit, long time, didn't know they'd make it. They were so strict on everything, you know, cause it was a family member and now they came in, rang the doorbell, hadn't seen them. They're from out of town. They were visiting us. And it, not only is it the hug, it's like the kiss on the cheek and, and, and a hug, you know, it's just so funny how we revert back, you know? And when I see even indoor, like up in New York, the Madison Square Garden, the Mecca, the New York Knicks in the playoffs. New York, when this first thing started, that was a hot spot. And I mean, there's no social distancing and fans are just, we're jacked. We're back. We're getting back. 
back. I also do, after this interview, want to tell you I'm kind of changing my tune on Tim Tebow, who's going through the workouts with the Jacksonville Jaguars as the tight end. And the more I'm seeing, the more I'm hearing, the more the people are telling me that are up there, I Tebow's got a shot at making this team. So we'll, I, there's plenty of stuff to talk about. I love you hanging with me here on the Rock Stops here. Here's my guest. ESPN broadcaster, college football analyst, Rini Ingolia. He played uh, college football at the University of Massachusetts, UMass. Three-year starter, over 1,000 yards, all three years, All-American. Was he going to get drafted? He didn't get drafted in the NFL. He was bummed out, so he was signed as a, uh, a free agent. He was with the Buffalo Bills. He's a guy, a young man that grew up in Rochester, New York. So for him, that was a that was a dream come true. So he was in the NFL for a short time. He ended up playing also at uh, NFL Europe, the Frankfurt Galaxy. What it was like over there. He played in the World Bowl. He scored the winning touchdown, and then he got into police work, law enforcement. He was started as a patrolman, and he did it all. He worked. He worked just about every single department, and ended up being a police detective in Orlando. He only just retired months ago this past year. He's still in his forties. He's a young man. He put in his twenty years, and of course, he is still an ESPN college football broadcaster. We talk football. We talk about his journey. Also, very quickly, but boy, oh boy, very passionate on what it was like and being a law enforcement officer and all that goes with it and, of course, his broadcasting career. Here he is, my man, Rini Ingolia. All right, Rini, you are one of you're very, very, very interesting. I don't think there's too many former law enforcement, and you were doing this broadcasting while you were still a police detective yes. in Orlando. You got to be the only one in the country, police detective, ESPN color analyst in football. Am I? Am I right? I, yeah, I got to believe so, Rock. I, I have not heard of anyone else uh, in law enforcement uh, being a broadcaster. So yeah, I think uh, I think I kind of marketed it. Uh, uh, and so I don't know. We'll see if we get another one down the road. You never know. Now, I want to get into your background, obviously. But do you think it was it was great to have almost like two different lives doing your cases with the police department and then also, man, just totally changing and in football and being in the game? Do you think that it actually like kind of helped you? I definitely do. One hundred percent. And I think it really helped my law enforcement career, because it really let me escape and get away. Because a lot of times in law enforcement, police, you just get so entrenched, especially as a detective, right? And you can get too entrenched in a case. Uh, and, and obviously you're working multiple cases. So for me, it was a great diversion. And, and you're right. It's just kind of like two different lives that, that mesh together. But yeah, I definitely think it helped. And I think it was a blessing really for the last half of my law enforcement career because I started broadcasting. You know, ESPN hired me in 2010. I started uh, in 09 with the UMass Sports Network. But so really the last half of my law enforcement career, I, I broadcasted. Yeah. Okay. So UMass, you are a legend uh, as a minute, man. You're in their Hall of Fame. What a career you had as a back uh, I'm sure there, those were some great, 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 great memories, huh? 
at UMass? Absolutely. And it's it's a funny story how I got there. So I uh, was born and raised in Rochester, New York. So that's where I'm from. I uh, played at Bishop Kearney High School, um, Catholic school in Rochester. And uh, before that, I, I played at a public school, Eastridge High School. And uh, I ended up going from the public high school to the Catholic high school. You know, kind of the get me more prepared for college. Um, but I played varsity football as an eighth grader, which was kind of unheard of. Um in the nation. So I was just kind of matured at a younger age and I was good enough. And so we had a coach at the time who's still a coach up there. Uh, his name's George Giordano. He took over the program at Eastridge High School and decided, looked at the numbers and said, well, I'm going to have a freshman team and a varsity team. I'm not even going to have a JV. So when I was in eighth grade, my goal was I want to make the JV team. Sure. And uh, after preseason camp, he called me in. He said, you're going to play varsity. So now in New York State, uh, they had rules, which most states do. Like I wasn't even in high school, obviously. I was in junior high. So I had to take a physical fitness test to say that I was equipped to play varsity football. And I passed it. And I did. I ended up starting uh, as a as a defensive back, as an eighth grader. And then I was probably third string running back. And as we got to the end of the year, you know, injuries. And we weren't very good. We were trying to get better. Um and actually, the the school we had we had been on like a twenty one game losing streak. So we get to the fourth game of the year, or fourth game left in the season, and uh, he said, "You're going to start a running back." And uh, my first game ever as an eighth grader, I had a hundred yards rushing. And long story short, we end up winning the last game of the year. I caught a touchdown pass with like eight seconds left, so it broke the. He broke like a four-year streak that the school had at one. And so I got a lot of uh, – I got recruited pretty heavily early. So I was kind of between Wisconsin, Boston College, and Syracuse. Uh, and then the unthinkable happened. Second game of my senior year, I blew out my left knee. And it was called the unhappy triad. I tore my ACL, uh, my MCL, and I tore uh, my medial meniscus. Oh. So I did all three. And oh. back then, so this is 1990. Right. So you do this in 1990, you're you're kind of done. Right, um, right. So, uh, you know, they came in, uh, Syracuse came in, and I'll never forget him touching my leg and uh, look, feeling the atrophy after, you know, my, my injury. And he just said, hey, if it was a scope, we'd still take you. Right. But total reconstruction. Right can't do it so oh. i lost all my scholarship members and i'll and i'll tell you at a young age rock what i really learned is is a huge life lesson so uh wisconsin i'll never forget it so this is a school that said they were gonna offer me right oh. and it was actually barry alvarez's first year so if you remember he was a defensive coordinator at notre dame got hired as wisconsin's head coach and i'll never forget the assistant coach guy by the name of bernie wyatt uh since retired um uh, was at Iowa under Hayden Fry for a long, long time uh, and then went to Wisconsin. He had started recruiting me at Iowa, and then when he switched to Wisconsin, kept recruiting me. And I'll never forget when he called me. He said, Rini, it's like you go to a car dealership to buy a car. So you go there, you're, you're, you're looking at the car, and you say, yep, I found the car I want. That's right. the car. You tell the dealership, that's the car. Right. You go back a month later to pick that car up, and there's a dent in it. Well, I mean, you didn't put the dent in it. You you don't know how the dent, you know, got there. There's a dent in it. So what are you going to do? Give me the next best car next to that one. And so that's recruiting. And so that's exactly. And then those are his words verbatim. 
You know, and so you learn a harsh lesson as yeah, an eighteen-year-old yeah, kid. Yeah, no, um, that crushing it, that at that, that time. And, and so, and I was so I had you know one of two options. I mean, you just give up, right? Or you say the hell with it. I'm gonna uh, you know have surgery. I had a doctor by the name of Kenneth DeHaven. He was one of the best surgeons in the country, really, at, at uh, University of Rochester Strong Memorial Hospital. And so, the, I tell people all the time with the ACL injuries, I said first and foremost, your surgeon has to do a good job putting you back together. I mean, it, it kind of goes without saying, but people don't think about that right. good surgeon and then you got to rehab your butt off and you just have to um and that's what i did so but the problem with me was everything happened so you know, in my senior year right and i was a three-sport af- athlete i played basketball and baseball and of course i couldn't play any sports but i just i rehabbed i rehabbed i rehabbed and i lost all the the big time offers so i was going to go to prep school fork union military academy a prestigious prep school and and turns out that same year eddie george was there so wow. i would have played with eddie george so and, and 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 like i said everything happened so late fort union's roster was was filled well my coach sent him a video and they saw it and they said he's got a spot so i could have went there the only problem was back then in 1990 you know the acl was it was a legit year year and a half yeah. injury it's yeah. not you know you get see people six months now but i so i would have had if i went to fort union i would have had a play that next fall and I don't know if the knee was ready. So, but I didn't have any alternatives, Rock. So I was going to go there. I think things happen for a reason. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. So signing days in uh, Feb- you know, first Tuesday in February, whatever it is, February 2nd, February 3rd. So, so it, was, it was late in March, middle of March. A recruiter, a coach by the name of John Zamboni uh, from UMass was in Rochester looking at another kid at another school. That coach at the other school said, hey, uh, you know, this player is going or is committing somewhere else. But, hey, there's a kid across town in Golia who this is what happened to him. You should go check on him. So I didn't get recruited by any small Division One schools. I was just getting recruited by, you know, Notre Dame, Pittsburgh, Penn State, wow. Syracuse, Boston College, Wisconsin. So none of the small schools had even looked at me. Sure. Um, and again, recruiting was different back then. Now everybody knows everything because of the internet. So I kind of fell through the cracks. So he comes to my school, this coach, never seeing me, um, and talks to my head coach and, and basically talks to me a little bit and says, hey, someone told me to come meet you. So I did. So uh, I gave him a VHS tape, right, because that's what we had uh, of my highlights. I gave him a VHS tape. And he said, all right, I'll take a look at it. Well, obviously, he must have, uh, he wasn't going back to UMass till the next day. He was in a hotel that night. Obviously, that night he got a VCR. He watched it. Calls me back. I think they called me that night. And he must have called his, the head coach, who, a guy by the name of Jim Reed, who I'm still friends with, who Jim Reed went on to coach uh, at VMI. He coached with the Dolphins, coached at Boston College. His last stop was defensive coordinator at Boston College, but a really well-renowned coach, especially in New England. And uh, so on social media, still talk to him all the time. And he must have looked at the film. He must have told Coach Reed, we need to bring this guy in. So they call me that night and they say, listen, you know, signing days in a couple weeks, um, but we have one official visit left. Um, and I think so. This was like Tuesday. I think he said it was this weekend. I said, he said, can you come? I said, absolutely. So I go up there, my father, and my brother, we take an official. Visit. The only official visit I took. So I meet Coach Reed. He's a smaller guy. And you meet him, you come in the office, and he always he shakes your hand. His thing was he would always pull you towards him, you know? And so I sit down and man, talk to him 30, 45 minutes, and he basically tells me, you're going to love this story. He basically says, listen, we heard great things about you. We saw your, your video. 
wanted to bring you in for a visit. Um, just want to let you know uh, we don't have any scholarships left. I'm out of scholarships, but I, you know, I still wanted to bring you in for a visit and see, you know, whatever. So, so this is Friday night, right? When I talk to Coach Reed, then I go on my visit, and you know, it's you, your 18 year old kid. You know, you go on a college visit and. It, you love it, right? It doesn't matter what you love it. And plus it was my only visit, right? So I loved it. So then what happens is after the weekend, Sunday morning before the visit ends, you go to this nice restaurant that they have in Amherst and there's a big buffet. You have a big breakfast buffet and there might've been six, eight recruits on the visit. And so the coaches will, you know, the position coaches, you know, they'll sit around eat with you. And then the head coach, Jim Reed will sit at every table. So he comes over to mine and he sits down with me, my brother, my dad. And I think there might have been a position coach there. And he says, I just want to let you know, um, when you left my office Friday night, I called Coach McPherson. I talked to him for two hours about you on the phone. And he said, based on what he told me, he said, I'd like to offer you a full scholarship right now. And this was so two days earlier, right? They didn't have didn't anything. Have any. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. So obviously I accept it. And I said, I'm going to come to UMass. Wow. Now, UMass, three years, over a thousand yards each year. Unbelievable. Probably one of the best running backs in the nation. Did you think that you were going to be drafted or were you just hoping? But eh, if I don't, I'll be undrafted. I'll be in the NFL coming out of all you've done. But where you're coming from, what was your mindset? So I thought I'd get drafted. So again, another learning lesson. I I have all this knowledge. I I should open up like a little (laughs) clinic for people. Um, I picked I heard the wrong agent. And so I'll I'll reverse, but I'm just getting ahead of it. I picked the wrong agent. And that really, really, really hurt me back then. So as you said, my listen, I feel blessed. Again, everything happens for a reason. So I get to UMass. and so Coach Reed, and this is the other great thing, too. Coach Reed says, I get there in 91. He says, we're redshirting you. You are not touching the field. We're redshirting you. You're going to rehab with our doctor. So, um, And so when you get to UMass, and most schools are like this, the main locker room, which is probably like 85 lockers, it's all the scholarship guys. And then there's probably, probably another 40 guys on the team. People don't realize how big these teams are in the other locker room. And so I'm in the scholarship locker room and all these people are looking at me like this kid's not even playing. The hell's he doing in the scholarship locker room? So, and then I used to condition with a team. It would be called the breakdown lane. So it was on the outside and we would do sprints and I was like running these sprints. I I felt great. I was ready to play. And I, and everyone's like, why isn't this guy playing? He's running like, you know, 10, four hundreds over here. So, uh, but anyway, so we get through that fall and we get to spring ball. And so this happens to a lot of running backs. Because let's face it, when you get to high school, all the elite players, everyone's either a running back, quarterback, receiver. Right. You know, and there's right. just not enough spots when you get to right. college. So usually they make you a defensive back. So Jim Reed being a defensive guy goes, hey, we're probably going to make you a DB. And you're on scholarship. You're, you know, I, it's the world was different back then than it is now. Because now these parents and players try to tell these coaches what the hell they're doing. And that's that's just wrong. And we can get into that later. You know, I, I'm just, I'm for the team. Yeah, coach, you want me to play defensive back? I'll play defensive back. But he says, I tell you what, though, we're going to leave it running back for spring ball and we'll make a decision. I said, okay, spring game. I broke an 82 yard touchdown run and there was no ever talk about me playing defensive back. So, <laughs> so we get in there, right? So now my freshman year, um, I end up winning the starting job as a redshirt freshman, my second game, you know, rush for about 700 yards, seven or eight touchdowns. So I win Yankee conference rookie of the year. 
And then from there on, as you said, the next three years, well over a thousand yards in 94, I uh, was a finalist for the Walter Payton Award, which is the Heisman for uh, FCS or 1AA when I played. Um, Steve, Mc- I was a uh, runner up to Steve McNair, uh, who obviously passed away a few years back, but had a great uh, college career at McNeese State. And then, of course, a great NFL career. Um, and so now I'm getting your question. So I'm thinking, OK, yeah, I think I, I'm, a, I'm a draftable player. So. Sure. Um, senior year, good year, hampered by a little injury senior year, but, um, but Haddock still had a good senior year. So I was kind of a tweener rock. So, uh, I was fast enough to play tailback, but I was, you know, I could, I bulked up and I was, uh, I, I didn't, I loved contact. So I didn't mind blocking again. I, you can't be selfish in a game of football. So I played fullback and tailback. I played I... both. So I think the NFL scouts were like, eh, he's a little too small for fullback. And while he's playing fullback, he's not really quick enough to play tailback. So I kind of got caught in that shuffle. Um, but I said, you know, when I go to the combine, well, I never I never got an invite to the combine. And my agent that I hired just didn't do the right things. There's no reason why. Listen, as I look back at it now, I rushed for over 4,600 yards and 55 touchdowns in my career. There's no reason why I shouldn't have been at the combine. None. So I relied on a few individual workouts like the Cleveland Browns, which are now the Baltimore Ravens, sure. came in and ran me. And listen, they ran me on electronic 40 time. And I went, I went 448, 448 electronically. So no my kidding. times were there. Okay. Um, I went to the Hula Bowl, played in the Hula Bowl, had a good game out there. But yeah, draft came. And it's funny, someone just had interviewed. I did a local interview uh-huh. um, uh, before the draft here for a local station. And uh he had asked me about that day, and it was funny because back then, ESPN2 was a brand new channel, right. and you didn't even get, you couldn't even get it. So that's what they put the other half of the, you know, the second day of the draft on. So I'm like, you can't, I couldn't even watch it. And I said, yeah, I got called by a couple teams that day, but nothing, nothing ever came to fruition. And so when the draft ended, I didn't even get signed. So I was like flabbergasted. I'm like, what in the hell is going on here? Like, I just, I just was beside myself. So my agent's like, don't worry about it. I got a contract for you in Canada. You're going to go play in Canada. So I signed a two-year deal with the Montreal Alouettes. And so, uh, you know, I keep training, I keep training and I go up to Montreal and I kid you not rock. I kid you not. We have one practice. And then the morning of another practice, I go into my locker for afternoon practice of the second day I'm there. And the equipment guy, he's taking my helmet out of my locker. I'm like, hey, what the hell are you doing? I got to get dressed for practice. And I'll never forget. He looks at me. He goes, oh, I hate when this happens. General manager was a guy by the name of Jim Pop. He's still in the business. He's still involved in Canada. He goes, Jim didn't talk to you? I said, no. He goes, oh, you better go see Jim. I go marching down to Jim's office. He goes, yeah, we got we to gotta cut you. We got to let you go. I go, Jim, I've been here one day. Like, wh- like, why would you even bring me here? Like, what are you doing? Goes, ah, you know, we're, we're hamstrung with the numbers. Because, you know, when you, a lot of people don't know this, in the Canadian Football League, they only allow you, the numbers might have tweaked a little bit, but back then you can only have 18 Americans on the right, team. Right, right. They don't want Americans just coming right. up there overrunning it. And I get it, but I get cut after a day and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So now, you know, I'm sitting there and I think I'm 21 now, 22 maybe. And I'm like, I don't get signed by an NFL team. Uh, you know, forget drafted. I don't even get right. signed. I, I, I signed a contract in Canada. I'm cut after a day. I'm like, what in the hell? So, you know, and, and the agent had said, oh, the NFL teams, they don't want they don't want to see highlight film. So I never did a highlight film of my college career. So I said, screw this. So I go back to UMass and I sit in the in the tape room and I make like an hour highlight film. 
I put everything on there, right? And then I just start sending it to NFL teams. You, right? your, you yourself. Yeah. You yourself. And a, lot of NFL, a lot of NFL teams ignored it, obviously. Right. A lot of them looked at it and had the professionalism to write me back and say, hey, you had a great career, but we just, we can't sign you, right? Right. right. And then we had a couple that said, hey, we, we have some intrigue with you. So one of the, one of the teams, uh, it's an interesting story. So one of them was the Buffalo Bills, right? So that's the team that's obviously an hour from where I lived in Rochester, New York. Um, so I send him the tape. So uh, AJ Smith was the director of player personnel there. John Butler was the general manager, great late John Butler. Um, and then AJ Smith, on the, he ended up going on to uh, be the general manager at the San Diego Chargers. So, so I, you're sending these tapes. Yeah. Out. So, you know, I sent uh, to Buffalo and uh, they get it. Well, actually, let me back up. So now I hire a new agent. OK, the guy I probably should have hired in the beginning, a guy by the name of Jack Mueller from Boston. Real good guy. Ended up being lead counsel for the New England Patriots for years. Lawyer should have went with him and I didn't. And so I immediately call him. And he, first of all, I'm like, hey, I need to fire my agent. What do I do? He said, well, just put in writing that he's fired certify it once you drop it in the mailbox he's fired so that's what i did um and i said will you represent me he said absolutely and so and jack ended up he was doug flutie's agent for a long time too um and so jack had, you know and guy didn't earn a cent off me but he was calling teams and this and that and and he actually so he started working on my behalf and i'm working for myself too right because there's no no you have no better advocate and i tell people this i don't care what business you're in broadcasting we talk i talk to people you're your best advocate so, and I'm sending these tapes out. So he gets with Buffalo and he calls me back and he says, Hey, Buffalo wants to talk to you on the phone. And so I, I talked to AJ. This is a funny, this is really funny how this happened. So I talked to AJ Smith and it's a three-way call. And he says, Hey, Rini, we know about you. You know, we know about your great career. This is what we're going to do in Buffalo. We are going to sponsor you to go play in NFL Europe. Remember, NFL Europe was pretty new back then. And if an NFL team wanted to send a player, they just said, hey, we're sending this player. So we're going to send you, you know, we're basically telling the league, we want you to play there. And he goes, we're going to, we'll, we'll look at you when you're there and this and that. So I'm, I'm thrilled with that, right? I'm like, oh, good. You know, thank you very much. That day, this is, this is true story. God is a witness. That day, before that phone call, I had dropped that VHS tape of my highlights in the mail to Buffalo. So right before the phone call ends, I said, I said, AJ, just so you don't think I'm like a whack job, right? Like I get off the phone talking to you and I send you this, this tape. I said, I put a tape in the mail. You're probably going to get it tomorrow. Just so you know. He goes, okay, okay. So we obviously got the tape. The next thing he must've watched it calls me back like the next day. He said, we're going to bring you in for a workout. So that is, so people that don't know when you work out for a professional team, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, a job interview. It's an interview in regular life. So he gives me the date and I'll never forget it. It was, a, I was going to work out for them on a Monday. It was like maybe three weeks down the road. Work out for them on a Monday. I'll never forget because the Bills played. Uh, I guess, I'm sorry. It was a Tuesday. I was going to work out for them on a Tuesday because Tuesday's the off day in the NFL. Um, I'll never forget because the, the Bills played the Dolphins on Monday night football the night before in Miami. So I drive up to, to Buffalo on Tuesday and uh and I was under the impression, remember when I talked about my body size? Right. I said, I got to bulk up and be like a fullback. So I had bulked up to like 218, which is was too heavy for me. 
But at two, so at two eighteen, you know, they did my body fat and everything. I still ran. I want to say four, five, six, four, five, seven. So, and just so people know, because these times out there are ridiculous in the NFL in the old days, anyway. They didn't give you the benefit. They were slow on the gun. Now everything's electronic now, but back then they did they used a watch. If you ran a legit sub four six, they considered that fast, fast enough. Okay, so I did that. You know, like I said, four five five, four five four, something like that, four five six. At two eighteen, they threw me a bunch of passes. I caught everything. I didn't drive everything. I did all these agility drills. So I had a really good workout. Really good workout. And so nothing, you know, I get, they give me a per diem. They're like, Hey, thanks for, thanks for coming. We'll, we'll, we'll see you down the road or whatever. So I go, I go home. I'm distraught thinking, you know, I'm going to get signed a month, a month to that day. AJ Smith calls me back and says, Hey, we're going to give you a two year contract. We're going to sign you. So I signed with the bills uh, immediately and I actually moved right to Buffalo and started working out and training. And so that's how I got with the bills. Wow. What was, did you, what was the biggest thing from being all everything at UMass, but the Yankee conference and now in, in the NFL, everybody always tells me everybody is good. It's the little things, you know what I mean? Did you feel that you, 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 you know, you were, you're, you're as good enough to be there. Once I got there and I lived there and I was working out with the players that worked out, um, which was just amazing in its own right. Like the NFL was paying me, you know, the NFL will pay, I was getting paid like $400 a week to lift weights. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Sure. Right. Um, but yeah, once I got there and so, and so this is, this will probably take us somewhere else later on, but it's, it's fascinating. So I kind of messed up in that. Like I, my goal was to make the team, mm-hmm. but make the team in any capacity. So gotcha. practice squad gotcha. back then, only five guys made practice squad. It's technically called developmental squad. So that was my goal. I said, I just, I just want to le- at least make the developmental squad. So, I, so when I got to training camp and I, I, so I was there for all the, they call them OTAs. And I was there for all the OTAs. I didn't miss anything. And listen, I pride myself in rock. I'm a professional. Um, I worked my ass off, you know? And so I listened to the coaches because a lot of players, when you get the NFL, they don't really listen. I listened and, you know, I had a running back coach. Uh, my, my last coach was, was Bishop Harris, a great guy who liked me. Um, but uh, my first running back coach was the late, great Elijah Pitts. And for you guys don't know who Elijah Pitts was, he was a running back for the great Green Bay Packer teams. He played for Vince Lombardi. And the stories he told us. So he was my first running back coach. And so I loved him. And so when I got to training camp, uh, the first training camp and we Buffalo's training camp was at Fredonia State College, about three hours from Rochester. And I'll never forget my, my dad, who's still alive, is 80 years old, uh, was a construction foreman. Um, he took off every day of work. He just told his bosses, I'm taking off. And he drove every day, three hours back and forth. He was at wow. every practice wow. and training camp, every two a day. Wow. Um, and I, I just played my butt off. I really did. And so. And I was making some, you know, I was doing, I was playing well. So I knew the first couple of weeks, I'm, I, I belong here. And I was, I was playing well. You know, I knew the plays. I was smart. I knew what the hell was going on. I knew what they wanted me to do, but it's an uphill battle rock. And cause of the issue is I got no signing bonus. Right. And I'll never forget it. The name's not important. They had drafted a running back in the third round. So in, in this, so this is 1997 now. So a third round back in 97, I think his signing bonus was about a half a million. You have, as a as an, as an undrafted free agent where they have invested no money in you, okay, 
you have to be so much better than that player that they gave a half a million to. One, to let that half a million walk away. And two, for them to save face and say, we just gave this guy half a million, drafted him, and then this guy. And so you're you're fighting that uphill battle. And I learned that early, too. So, you know, I'm playing, I'm playing my tail off, and I'll never forget the first preseason game. Uh, it was at Denver, the old Mile High Stadium. John Elway was still the quarterback. And uh, I got in there. I played some in the third quarter, some in the fourth, but I caught a 45-yard pass down the left sideline. I caught a screen over the middle and went for 20. Had about, you know, 50 yards rushing. I ended up leading the team in receiving. I think I caught four balls for like 92 yards. And Dan Henning was our offensive coordinator who's, you know, had coached in a million places, had coached at Chargers. He'd been everywhere. Came up to me after the locker room. Good job, young man. So I knew like right that after that game, I said, okay, I'm on the cusp of making this team. They know that. Um, and Marv Levy he always called me Renee. You know, he never got Reenie right, but that's okay. It's Marv Levy. You weren't going to let him. You just no. let it go. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so had a really good camp. So, so I had a couple other preseason games. So now we get to the last preseason game of the year. Green Bay Packers. We're playing them in Toronto. It's called the American Bowl. Brett Favre's the quarterback. And I have a horrible game. Horrible. I screw up on special teams. I, I And I, I'll tell you what, um, this is where you got to get your head out of the butt as a player, I don't care what sport you play. When you make a bad play, you got to let it go. I had dropped a pass over the middle and I was really ticked off about it on third down. I had the first down I run off the field. Well, guess what? I was on punt team. So I'm over there sulking on the sideline and I was supposed to be out there. They had to call a timeout. I got my butt reamed. And so I'm like, yes, it just, it was a disaster. Well, guess what? So this was on a, this game was on a Sunday. Guess what was on Monday? It was the, it was cut down day. So in case you don't know, in the NFL, so we had broken from Fredonia, so we were all back in Buffalo. So again, the final cuts aren't done. So, you know, the draft, the players that were drafted and the veterans, they're all in the regular locker room. Everyone else is in the is in the uh, visitors' locker room. So cut day comes, and it's it's the weirdest thing. So they the person that comes around and gets you, they it's, he's called the Turk, okay. And usually it's an assistant trainer or someone, and they come and get you. So. You have meetings at 9 a.m. Like you're there and you have meetings at 9 a.m. Well, the cuts are taking place. So you don't go to the meetings. You So basically there's like like 20 of us that needed to be, that we're going to get cut. So you're all in the locker room and it's just quiet. And everyone's sitting there and you're just all staring at each other. And you're like, it's the worst. And yeah. so the Turk comes in and everyone stares at him and he'll point and he'll say, Rock, Coach Levy needs to see you. So, you know, Rock's cut and everyone's like, Feels bad for Rock, but sigh of relief, it's not them. And you, it's it's agonizing, agonizing. You just sit there. It's agonizing. You just sit there, and every five minutes, he comes in. And he said, hey, he comes in. Reenie, coach needs to talk to you. So you know you're cut, right? And it, I mean, you're 22 years old. I mean, the tears start coming already before the coach talks to you. So I go in there, and he says to me, he might have called me Reenie then. First thing he says to me, you are not getting cut. Because of your game yesterday. And I just told you I had a horrible game against the right. Packers. So I just took a deep breath. I go, that's good. He goes, listen, it's 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 solely a numbers game. He goes, I can't, we cannot keep you right now. But he goes, I will tell you this. He goes, next week is when the Ross final roster gets set. He goes, I can't guarantee you, but I can pretty much tell you we're going to sign you to the developmental squad. You're going to be on the practice squad, which was originally one of you know my main goals. Sure. 
So I took a sigh of relief. And, and, and listen, I had such a good camp rock. I, 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 it was a guarantee. I knew they were signing me to developmental squad. So he said, just go home, relax, and we'll be back in touch with you in five days. So I go home that Monday. The Washington Redskins call me. Washington football team now. They were the Washington Redskins then. They call me. And they said, we want to bring you in for a workout. So what happens is the teams watch the other teams and they see who they release. And, and, and so they're trying to fill their roster and make their roster better. They said, we want to bring you in for a workout. So my agent said, yeah, let's do it. I said, yeah, why not? No one else has seen me, right? So that next morning, I am on a plane. Fly to Washington. I'm in Ashburn, Virginia, where the Redskins facility is. Um, uh, and, and so I'm ready where I think they brought in. I think they brought in maybe five or six running backs, all running backs um, to work out. And so now the, the weird thing is. You just get done with a train, an NFL training camp, which is like five weeks long. And so your body's beat up. But now you got to run the 40 again. You got to catch passes. You got to. So I remember Bobby Jackson was a running back coach. He was there um, watching me. Uh, North Turner was the head coach. Um, trying to think who the uh, general manager was. His name escaped me, but it'll it'll That's come. Okay. It'll come okay. back to me. So I run a 40 and uh, I blitz it, man. I'm running in the four fours. I run a great time on AstroTurf, catch a ton of passes again. I mean, I had a great workout. I mean, a really good workout. So I'm in the shower after that, and uh, they had a long, long, long time trainer, head trainer there named Bubba Tire. There was a couple other guys in the shower. with me. Like I said, they brought in like six running backs. And he comes in the shower, and he says, Norv wants to see you. So right then and there, I said, they're going to they're gonna offer me. So I go up, I sit down in Norv Turner's office, and he says, hey, you had a great workout. We, like what you did, we want to, we have a spot in our developmental squad. We want to sign you right now. I said, I appreciate it. I said, just out of professionalism, out of courtesy, I would like to let the Bills know what you're doing to see what they have to say. He said, I understand. We just need an answer, you know, tomorrow. So my agent uh, calls the Bills and uh, they are just kind of, I think, kind of caught off guard. You know what I mean? Because again, it's a numbers game. To make the 53-man roster, the actual roster, people got to get cut and a lot of money involved. And so the Bills kind of just dragging their feet. So I signed with the Redskins. So boom. And so the next week, I'm in Washington. So I wasn't in training camp with these guys at all. And, uh, and so you'll like this. So in Washington, they said, listen, your games, I was developmental squad, practice squad running back, your games are on Wednesday and Thursday. We want you to run your tail off. And I did, man. So it's great. So I try to tell people all the time, again, developmental squad, practice squad, only five players. Some people think it's a team of 30. It's not. It's five guys. So you're intertwined with everyone. Um, Jeff Hostetler, Super Bowl winning quarterback was my quarterback. He ran scout team. So it was great. I mean, we'd get, I'd get in a huddle with Jeff Hostetler. And so when we were playing, when the Redskins were playing the Cowboys, I was Emmett Smith. You know, when they were playing Philadelphia, I wore a Ricky Waters jersey. They played uh, Detroit that year. I was Barry Sanders. And uh, Mike Nolan was the defensive coordinator who went on, you know, went on to be a uh, head coach. Um, and I'll just never remember. And so I ran my tail off. I mean, I ran hard, full contact. Um, uh, and I'll never forget. So I used to, I didn't wear a mouthpiece. It's the NFL. They don't care. So I didn't wear a mouthpiece and I'll never forget. Someone ever asked me the hardest I ever got hit. Full contact practice. And that was full contact. Washington was full contact. 
um, which it's unheard of today. I mean, these NFL players, you can't even touch them now. Full full contact. I'll never forget. I collided with a middle linebacker by the name of Marvkiss Patton. A great NFL career. And if you don't know, it's it's Marvkiss. It's M-A-R-V-C-U-S Patton. I think he played at LSU. You Google that guy. He's chiseled. He's like Adonis. I'll never forget hitting him. It was a collision. Needless to say, Rock, I put a mouthpiece in <laughs> for, for every time after that. It, it was amazing. But I worked my tail off. Um, and I'll never forget. Uh, uh, oh, my God. I, it escapes me. Um, holy cow. One of the greatest defensive backs that ever played. Uh, well, anyway, I'm trying to think. Daryl uh, oh. Green. Oh, I don't know how I could sure. forget Daryl Green. I mean, he played forever. Guy could run. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I'll never forget, he came up to me in the locker room one day. He goes, you keep doing what you do. He said, you're going to be on this roster full time. And he started calling me Little Riggins. Really? Because he was old enough to play with probably John Riggins. I mean, I, not probably. He did. Um, and so he would call me Little Riggins. I ran. I mean, Rock, they told me to run. I ran. I mean, I was running people over. I mean, that, that's what I was supposed to do. And uh, I'll never forget it. Um, so I'm having a good year. And Charlie Casterly is the GM. For the Redskins. And I'll never forget it. It's a, it's a Saturday. Had a good week of practice. And here's the thing. Every NFL team is different. Redskins had been cutting and releasing people like crazy all during the year. Bring people in, cut people, bring people in, cut people. So you're always on pins and needles, right? And again, I had playing well. And uh, I'll never forget. It's a Saturday. And uh, it was kind of a walkthrough. And Charlie Castro, the GM, walks up to me. During practice, and he says, I need to talk to you when practice is over. So I'm like, I said, I'm getting cut. I can't believe it. I mean, oh, I'm getting cut. So uh, it was a, a wide receiver there that went on, Chris Thomas went on to have a really nice NFL career. And I'm like, Chris, Charlie needs to talk to me. They're cutting me. He said, There's no way they're cutting you. I said, They've been cutting people like crazy. Well, what do you, he needs to talk to me. He goes, So I walk up to Charlie. And again, this is 97. So I think like the internet's like brand new, 97. I mean, it's it's like, so he comes up to me and he says, here's the deal. He said, uh, Buffalo is going to sign you to their active roster. Because uh, for people that don't know, the only way you can get signed off another team's developmental squad, a team has to sign you to their 53-man roster. They can't just say, hey, we want you on our practice squad. They have to sign you to the roster, which means obviously, it's, so they had some injuries and stuff. And Charlie goes, and here's the deal. He said, I can't. So this was the year for the Redskins fans out there. This was the year, 97, they were, they were, they were having a good season. Um, Gus Farratt was their quarterback. This was the year, and it was the same week, the same week the Bills signed me. He scored a touchdown, and he headbutted the wall in the end zone, and he sprained his neck. And he was out for the rest of the year, and they just they collapsed. So if you're, if you're a Washington fan, you'll remember that. The same week. And... Uh, so Charlie goes, I can't cut someone. We're like in a playoff run. I would love to keep you. My professional advice is the GM for the Washington is to go to Buffalo. So it's it's Saturday, Rock. It's like 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning. He said, you know, go see my secretary, Joyce. Um, she's got your ticket. They're expecting because they knew I was going to say yes. I didn't even have time to call my family. I lived in I lived in Leesburg, Virginia. I had an apartment. My car was there. I left everything. I packed a bag. You know, an intern drove me to the airport. I was on a plane to Buffalo at like 
at like 1 p.m. I land in Buffalo. I call and I obviously I have friends on the bills because I spent all offseason, all training camp. A good buddy of mine, Billy Connady, who uh, had a great NFL career, was a center, played at Virginia Tech and ended up playing for bills for five, six years. Cowboys, uh, Patriots, had a good 10, 12 year career. I call Billy up. I go, guess where I am? He goes, oh, Washington. I go, no, I'm in Lackawanna. I'm at the hotel that, you know, we stay at. I go, the bill signed me. So, so Friday or Saturday, it might've been Friday. I might be off a day. It might've been Friday, but all I know is Friday, I'm in a red Washington helmet and Saturday, I'm in a Bill's helmet. It's just, it's the craziest thing. Uh-huh. All my parents. And so I was on the active roster for the rest of, you know, probably the last eight games of, of 97. Um, and was supposed to play against Green Bay. Um, Steve Tasker's last game, and I was set to go and play, and they kind of pulled it back and and decided not to do that. And uh, but yeah, so that's how I made it to the the active roster. The next year, I was back with them for that year. So yeah, crazy story. Now I do want to get obviously to you know what you did you know as a police detective and in your broadcasting career, but just real briefly, you sure. also had a stint in NFL Europe, Frankfurt, I did, Frankfurt Galaxy. Galaxy. You won. You guys won the World Bowl. You had the winning touchdown, I believe. Yep. Everybody that I have talked to that have played in NFL Europe tells me it was a great experience, both living over there and yep. to play. Was it the same with you? It was. And if it wasn't so expensive, you got to remember the NFL ran that. The NFL paid everything. If it wasn't so expensive for the NFL, it would still be there today because um, so we had, I played in Frankfurt. There was three teams in Germany. The Germans loved American football. I mean, they loved it. I told someone the story the other day. They they don't call it tailgating over there. They call it power partying, and they go. I mean, they go. So and listen, there's certain like uh, as we know because the Jags go. A lot of NFL teams yes. go to, to 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 London. Yes, they've taken a real liking to it. Barcelona, Spain's probably never going to American football. But, Got it. Uh, Got but, it. But you know, Scotland liked it. Germany loved it. And again, you got to remember, so we lived over there as the players, but the NFL's flying the referees over there. They're flying personnel. It was just expensive. I see. And we made, as players, we made $1,000 a week. That's what we made. So you weren't. That was it. It's it. 10 games, $1,000 a week. And your room and board was paid for, obviously. So you're I not see. you're not staying. It's a, it was a developmental league, but it was great. It was fun. So what happened was after the 98 season, when my contract expired with the Bills, again, so yeah. many good players keep coming out. Sure. Um, they just they didn't renew my contract and sure. I get it I get it I had I had spent my allotment on a developmental squad you can only stay for a couple of years and so um when I went over to NFL Europe when I was in that draft for NFL Europe I knew it was a last hurrah I in see. the back of my mind I kind of said well if a team signs me sure but I wanted to get into law enforcement I wanted to be a federal agent and I said I'm just gonna be a last hurrah I'm gonna go over there and it was I went over there Jake Delone was a quarterback we won the World Bowl I got a really nice ring so the last game forget you know it was the last professional game but the sure. last game i ever played in yeah scored a touchdown we won and i got a ring out of it so really great memories so i have no you know no complaints it, so, was, it was great so just by catching your drift here so when you get into uh you know you apply i know there was a you know through somebody a, a woman and a family mm-hmm. blah 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 you get in you started as a uh, police officer yeah. officer and eventually detective were there times in the beginning where you're like, oh, I can still play. Oh, I wish I uh, I got to do it. I'm going to train. I know I got another shot. I, no. Yeah. Yes. yes. And uh, there was two chances and I'll get to the story. I'll tell you. So. So prior to that. So, again, I wanted to be a federal agent. So this was all obviously prior to 
And so NFL, uh, federal agency is kind of on a hiring freeze. But I had a, I had a, the DEA was hiring. So I'd go through all the interviews and basically, long story short, they basically said I didn't have enough professional experience. They wouldn't count my professional football playing as professional experience. They, the guy said, oh, if you were a gym teacher, I said, so a gym teacher counts, but not so long story short, the DEA didn't hire me, but Orlando police, I applied. They were, they were on our hire and really they were hiring a lot of people. If you had a four year degree and I mean, I got hired within six months. So I said, ah, hey, what the hell? I'm going to move to Orlando. Sure. I'm going to get into law enforcement. And so I did. So while I was, you know, uh, early, early on in my career, I was a patrol officer working midnights. Um, so the first opportunity was the XFL came up. So obviously Orlando had a team, but they had thrown a lot of money into it. So I was actually, my name was in the XFL draft. So I remember the Los Angeles Express called me. So I remember going to my training officers and I, I think I was just at the end of my field training. Okay. And I said, Hey, will the chief give me a leave of absence if I get drafted? I have been through all this training. And of course, the Orlando Police Department, they paid for it all, right? Because you get hired, they paid for it all. And so, and he basically said no. So I told them, and this is another thing, Rocco, I really believe everything happens for a reason. I think I was, tw- I was 28. So I said, I made my mind up. I said, well, if I get drafted, I'm going in the XFL. Luckily, I didn't get drafted. Isn't that something? I didn't get drafted. Um, the league lasted, what, two years, right? Yeah. And that one year, one good yeah. year, and I think the next year. So I didn't get drafted. So that was good. And then uh, my next opportunity where I kind of sought it out, right? Because I my the wheels were turning in my head, still playing, arena football. So the Predators, uh, Orlando Predators, and, you know, Tampa Bay had a great, you know, great rivalry, great arena football. And at the time, arena football got really big. Yeah, at that time. And really, yeah. those guys ended up making really good money. And that was obviously the undoing of the league because once they unionize and you got workers' comp and you're paying all this money, they couldn't make it. I mean, that's really what did that league in. But Jay Gruden was the head coach for the Orlando team. Their office was literally across the street from the Orlando Police Department. So I go over there and see him one day. Really? And I'm like, yeah, and I, my credentials, he goes, yeah, he goes, come on out. We'll love to have you, right? And, uh, but I never did it. I mean, something, something told me just, you know, don't do it. So I never did it. And I, I progressed with my law enforcement career. Wow, 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 wow. And then obviously with the family and, you know, it, it was the best thing. And you ended up just recently retiring. You're still very young. Get a little uh, chubby. Uh, I just turned 49 last you're week. So. looking fantastic. Looking fantastic. Anything all briefly before we get into your broadcasting yeah. career that you would like to say about what you did and as a detective and at, with your career in law enforcement? Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, it's just no secret. It's a very tough career now, and so the thing that frightens me uh, as a former law enforcement officer is what's going on in our country is going to scare away good people from being police officers. And that I tell people all the time. I said I don't care what the profession is, law enforcement, uh, lawyer's office, dentist's office, doctor, post office, construction worker. You need to hire good people first and foremost. Once you hire good people, you train them. I don't want to get into the weeds about what's going on in the country, um, but I it's not cliche, Rock. It is not cliche. I lived it. I worked internal affairs for two and a half years, too, so I took complaints. I saw both sides of it. 99.9% of the men and women do a great job, and they get vilified unjustly. They do. You know, Is there officers that screw up? Yes. And when they break the law, they need to be prosecuted, okay? I believe you go harder at them. A lot of people don't. Oh, Justin, no, no, no. They took an oath 
when they break the law, they need to be punished severely. I totally agree with that. But there's also officers out there, Rock, that do their job and they do it right. And sometimes they make a mistake like everybody does. And these people that make mistakes, they're being vilified like they're, you know, the worst thing ever. So there's a you got to see between it. Right. You got to understand the job in and of itself. It's like, you know, people, you know, you have these civilian review boards and I get it. I understand it. But would you like, I tell people all the time, you know, in the broadcast world, in whatever your job is, would you like a civilian board that knows nothing about your profession, nothing about it, come in and critique you and tell you you're wrong when you're sitting there saying, no, I'm not wrong. I did this right. Or no, I did it right. But there was, there was a mistake here, but it's not what you make it out to be. So again, the men and women do a great, great job. They do. Listen, does training need to be better? Of course it does. We need to update training in whatever profession you're in, okay? And it all starts in the community, community relations. I agree with all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, um, and I I would not uh, trade my law enforcement career for anything. I did about 10 years in patrol in I was a tactical officer. I worked narcotics. I did all that. The last half of my career, I was a criminal investigator. I was a detective. And again, I said I had a stint of internal affairs in there, too. So I've seen it all. Now, I would be lying if I didn't tell you that one of the reasons I retired when I did was because what's going on in the world? It it just I I just, you know, I'm a big coffee. I love coffee, Rock. I'm a big coffee drinker. Okay. (laughs) I went to school in New England. Big Dunkin' Dunkin' Donuts (laughs) guy. Okay. So it got to a point at the end of my career. Where you couldn't go into a coffee shop without getting dirty looks. Really? And so I stopped and I just started going through drive throughs because you just are like, well, I, you know, I don't want people putting stuff in my coffee. I, you know, I'm like, oh. you know, so, and I just was like, and I'll grant I had another career to fall back on, which a lot of people don't. So I was blessed with that. So when I had the opportunity to retire, I did. And so, you know, I listen, I say a prayer for all the men and women in law enforcement. Um, it, it's a tough job. And, and by and large, uh, they, they do a good job. And again, if you're a bad cop and you mess up, you need to be out. You need to be prosecuted. Every good cop will tell you that. Yeah. There's a lot less bad cops than people think. There, right. there just is. And unfortunately, there's a narrative out there. There's a there's a systemic bad policing. And and, I, and I'm telling you from my personal experience, um, it's not true. It's just not true. Um, Did you... I'm sure you have. Did you ever have any very close calls with your life? Absolutely. Your life, I bet. I don't think any. I mean, there's been times. I'll give you a perfect example. So I worked midnights for a long time. And, you know, you're going to pull cars over that are four or five deep. And those hair, the hair comes up in the back of your neck. And and listen, and people, I tell I tell people this and they, they think it's wrong. It's not wrong. My job and your job as a police officer, I have two daughters and a wife, okay? My job was to come home to them each and every night, okay? People are saying, that's wrong. You signed up for a police, to be a police officer. If you get shot and killed, that's on you. No, that's not right. No, that's not true. You take an oath to protect and serve the public, first and foremost. And yeah, would I take a bullet and would I go to, in harm's way for the public? Absolutely, because that's the oath I, I signed, which all officers did. But I'm not just going to willy nilly uh, do something wrong to appease the media or people because they think what you're doing is wrong. 
and get and get killed. That, that's not how it works. See, and that's the problem that's happening. You got law enforcement officers that aren't doing the job correctly because they're afraid of what people are going to say because they're getting videotaped or what the media is going to say or what some lawyer is going to do. And that's going to get you killed. Complacency and not doing the job correctly gets you killed. But there's men plenty times people are like, oh, I can't believe that cop took his gun out of his holster. Well, yeah. Okay. Uh, reaction, it, 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 you know, action is quicker than reaction. So there's multiple times my gun's out of the holster. Now, I'm not willy nilly pointing it at people, but you have to, and see, this is where law enforcement and to me, athletics coincide because I'm very visual. You see a Phil Mickelson. These golfers are phenomenal. They visualize the shots. They slow things down. They visualize it before it happens. I used to do that in football all the time, Rock. I'd visualize me breaking tackles. I'd visualize spinning off a defender, getting through the hole. You visualize catching the pass, getting the foot inbounds. Visualization. Law enforcement's no different. I would visualize, all right, I'm pulling up to a stop sign. Some guy comes running out of the corner, starts shooting me. What are you going to do? Like, you have to train yourself that way. You have to. I'm walking up to a car. The passenger gets out and starts shooting me. What are you going to do? You have to do that or else your body, your brain's not ready for it. You have to. And so I, I constantly did that. So is there times my gun was up? Multiple times. Yeah. Luckily, I never had to uh, uh, shoot at anyone during my career. Um, there's been scenes where I've been out where shots have been fired. Yeah. Uh, multiple times. Wow. So... Yeah, but it's, uh, I, I just, you know, I, I pray for our country, you know, that we just, and I'll tell you another story before we get into sure. the broadcasting, 2001, September 11th, 2001. I think uh, if you're of age, everybody remembers where they were. Yep. So that week, going back to work, I was a midnight patrol officer. So I worked midnights. I worked in the inner city, worked in the Paramore area of Orlando. It was just, it was just, it was an eerie, eerie time for our country, right? And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Young African-American kid, probably 22, 23, came up to me and we were talking. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, can you believe what they did to us? And I said, I know. Never in this country, in my life, has this country been closer as a country, as Americans, not as a uh, divided by race, religion, socioeconomic background, you name it. We were Americans, and boy, you know, it it sucks that had to happen for us to come together, but how quick we forget in this country, and so I, I long for the day that we can get back as Americans and judge people for their, their content, their character, not for what they look like, not for the job they have, not for their religious background, and you know, Rock, it's, it's okay. In this country, we can agree to disagree on things right. and still be civil and still love each other and still be friends. Right. right? Somewhere that that line got blurred and it's 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 absolutely crazy. And so that's, you know, again, that's one of the reasons why I left law enforcement. Uh, what, what a great story that was about that young man at that time. All right, so just to speed it up, sure. you're on ESPN. And I talk a lot. I apologize. No, I, uh, podcasting is about great storytelling, and you got some great stories. But you started out at UMass, and you went back, and you paid your own way, yeah. and you got into it. You get on, boom, ESPN3, and at the beginning, no, eh, how many people are watching, but where you are today. And it sounds like, even though you were in the pro game, you just love college football. 
You love being on campus. You love doing your homework. You love meeting with the coches and the kids. You love it. Yeah. Do you not? Do you not? Well, so I'm going to have to get another story. So you right, might, might have yeah. to do two podcasts, I guess. So I missed football. You know, I was probably eight or nine years into my career at the Orlando Police Department. I just, I missed football. And I did. I helped out. I coached Pop Warner and I helped out some high schools. And But I just missed it on a bigger level. And again, I'm married. I have a career. I have two kids. I can't just get into college coaching. I just, you know, I just couldn't do it. So I said, you know what? What happened was it was 07. I got inducted into the UMass Athletics Hall of Fame. I go up there at halftime. So there's the ceremony, hall, the hall of Fame induction ceremony. And then the next day there's a football game. Halftime, I was the guest. And I'll never forget. I was the, I go, I put the headphones on. First time I never put headphones on, right? Microphone. Bob Beeler at the time was the voice of, of uh, Minuteman. He's now the voice of Boise State. Interviews me. We do like a six or seven minute interview. I get done with that, and I'm like, I, I love this. This was great. I think this is something I can do. So I start, I'll speed it up. I, I basically start scouring the internet for people I might know that are in the broadcast world that know me. I came across someone, and I'll leave the names out, at ESPN, sure. uh-huh. and I send him a cold email. And I'm a detective, so I could figure out his email. It's, it's usually at those companies, first name, dot, last name, <laughs> at ESPN.com. And I was right. Yep. Sent him an email, cold email, and he sends me an email back. And he says, I'd love to help you. I'm going to have my CP, my coordinating producer, reach out to you. So the CP reaches out to me. I'm like, I can't believe this. He goes, hey, send me your demo. <laughs> so I'm, this is me being naive. Everyone sure, in the sure, broadcast sure, world, I'm sure. like, yeah, don't have a demo. I didn't know if I could audition. He goes, no, we need a demo. He goes, listen, just get into it. I don't care if it's high school, Pop Warner, you need a demo. I said, okay. So that year kind of goes by, but that's next year I call UMass. And I say, listen, I want to join the UMass Sports Network. I said, I'm not looking to get anyone fired. Right. I just, I want to get some experience. They said, are you kidding us? I said, no. They said, yes, we want to have you. But they said, we can't afford to fly you from Orlando to Massachusetts. I said, I'll pay my way. So I did it. So basically, I worked as a detective. I was a young detective then. I worked. I didn't even tell the Orlando police I was doing it. Now, Uh since then, I signed all the proper paperwork. So I would work Monday through Friday. Southwest Airlines out of Orlando every Friday night at 830 had a direct flight from Orlando to Manchester, New Hampshire, 830 every Friday night. It was the cheapest flight. So I'd work as a detective. If I had on call or, or something I had to do for work, I, someone would cover me. They were great. I would, uh, so I'd fly from Orlando to Manchester and I would drive from, I'd rent, rent a car, drive from yeah. Manchester to Amherst, which was about an hour and a half. So I'd get in about 1130 every night, midnight. One of my former teammates, Dan Markowski, great guy at the time, was an associate AD there. I'd sleep in his basement. I'd get there. We'd have a few soda pops, talk, sleep in his basement. I'd get up. I'd go call the game on Saturday. Um, and then, you know, afterwards, have a few pops. Sure. Sunday, I'd wake up, drive back to Manchester, New Hampshire, fly back to Orlando, work my week, and then do it all again. And if it was an away game, I would fly and meet them, and they, I would stay. And so I did that for a whole year. So I had a radio demo. Nice. Right? Nice. So I got back to that. One person I'd reach out to, the boss, who was now, because now, now we're, you know, now we're probably a year and a half later from that initial. Now he's a bigger boss. So I get it to him and I, I tell him, he goes, this is what I want you to do. I want you to send it to this guy. So a guy by the name of Stas Hall, who was my first boss. Now he was one of the guys that was a casualty this past year of being let go. He had sure. been at ESPN over 20 years. He basically, anybody that worked in the ESPN three realm, Worked for Stas Hall. He ran the entire ESPN3 world. Phenomenal boss. Phenomenal. And I'll never forget. So I send him the demo. He acknowledges that he gets it. And that's it. I don't hear from him. 
It's another real good story. <laughs> you'll like this. As a broadcaster, you'll like yeah, this story. Yeah, yeah. So it gets to probably July-ish of now, 2010. Okay. Okay. So I don't hear from him. And it'd been like, you know, I think I had sent the sent the demo in like February. Okay. Well, that's a long time. Away. So yeah. I email him. I'm saying, hey, I really appreciate you looking at the demo. I'm going to work for the UMass Sports Network again. I'll do radio again. I'll keep honing my craft. And hopefully you can look at me again, you know, next year. Sends me back an email. And now that I'm friends with Stoss and I know him, those bosses, are they're, they're very, they're busy. Sure. So if you get an email back, it's really short. Yeah. And all it said was, I may have something for you first week or last week and, and last week of the month. So I'm th- sitting there like, because in my wildest dreams, Rock, I thought like, so I, I bombarded Comcast, uh, some, sure. some local packagers sure. in the mid Atlantic area. Right. Um, and that's who I thought I'd get a shot with in my wildest dreams. I never thought I, you know, I'd get a chance with ESPN. Right. So I'm like, I'm sitting at my desk as a detective sending these emails and <laughs> get the email back. And I'm like, Oh my God. I mean, I may get a chance with ESPN. This is unbelievable. Oh. So now it gets to like, it's like, it's like three or four days later. And this is, this is where I give people advice too. I can't contain myself. So I have to email him again. So I email him again. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I am so excited with the, the thought and the chance, the opportunity to work for ESPN. I just need to know. And he emails me back and he says, how about Duke 831, meaning August 31st. Right. So I'm like, huh. guess I'm going to do the Duke game. Uh-huh. So I'm like, yes, right immediately. Yeah. There's yeah. no thought about it. And then he emails me a couple hours. He's like, I got a problem with another broadcaster, with another analyst. Can I change you? Can you do the Temple game 9-2? I go, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so that year, which was 2010, I did, I did three games. I did Temple Villanova, which was the first game I ever did. And oh, by the way, I had never done TV. So for those who don't know, when you do a game on ESPN3, it's a TV production. Yeah. There's basically a button that gets pressed in the truck that sends it to the internet instead of TV. But everything's a TV production. Never did it. I didn't have an IFB. I didn't have any. So they gave me all that stuff, which is your earpiece for those that don't know. Um, and I remember we were going to tape the open and they were having all kinds of problems in the truck. And I'll never forget the producer saying, F it, we'll do it live. And I'm sitting there puckered up thinking I've never done TV. It's incredible. Now I'm doing a live open. And I just that whole time, I just was telling myself, be yourself, um, have fun and just don't do anything stupid. You know, just don't step in it and you'll be fine. And Rock, I was, when I got done with that game, I was on cloud nine. So I should say the first broadcast game I ever did for UMass radio was UMass at Kansas State in 08. And I remember getting done with that game, floating. Sure. Thinking, this is what I want to do. Right. And that you was got radio. The, and I love radio. You got the bug. I said, I, this is what I want to do. And then I had that same feeling when I got done with that Villanova Temple game. And it was a great game. It was a field goal game at the end. And I was just like, and then, of course, you get no feedback at all. <laughs> so everybody says in the business, no news is good news. And as I know now, you only get called by your bosses when you screw up. And you know this. You've been in the business forever. Yeah. So, again, a couple of weeks goes by, and I end up doing later in that year or later in that month, I do, I come to Tampa, I do USF FAU. So now Arnold Snellenberger, right, is the coach FAU. So I get to talk to him and interview him, and then, um, Skip Holtz was a coach at USF at the time. Well, I knew Skip because obviously Notre Dame recruited me, but Skip was the head coach at UConn when I played at UMass. So Skip knew me and Peter Voss was there. Someone that I'm good friends with who is an NFL. It was a uh, college uh, replay official now who lives in Tampa, who I 
talk to Pete all the time because I run into him through doing games in the American. So that was the second game I did again on cloud nine, just loving it even more. I'm in yes. Raymond James doing the game now. Yeah, and so yeah. my first two games, I'm in NFL stadiums. I was in Philadelphia. I'm in Tampa. And then the last game I do that year, which was the best of them all. I do Boston college, Maryland when Maryland's still in the ACC in Chestnut Hill. And I'm thinking I'm doing an ACC conference game. I go, this is unbelievable. So I do three games that year. And uh, again, don't really hear anything until the year ends. And they're like, oh, we're going to give you, you know, I, I, back then I was an independent contractor. So it was year to year. I see. But I did uh, the next, that very next year, I was done. I said, sorry, UMass. And they knew I was done. I did 12 games on ESPN3. I did a ton of American games, UCF, a ton of games. And I did, and I would do Division Three playoff games. And listen, I'm the type of guy, I love it. I'll do anything. I'll go to Alaska and do a Division Three game. They know that. And so that's the advice I give people. People ask me all the time. I get emails and calls all the time, and I will never turn anyone down because here's, if that boss at ESPN didn't answer my email, I wouldn't be where I am today broadcasting. So I always try to help people. I may not be able to help you, but I will always give you advice. I never turn anyone down. I've met with multiple people. I've had coffee, strangers, you know, people connect me with people. So I always tell people, again, be your own advocate, right? And I always tell them there's a fine line. Remember I told you I sent those emails? Yeah. And I tell people all the time, there's a fine line in the broadcast business. You have to be persistent, but not a pain in the ass. And that's a tough line. It that's is. a tough line it to be on. so is true. Because the majority of people be, end up becoming a pain in the ass. Right. And you turn the bosses off and you're done. So right. you have to toe that line. You have to figure it out. I can't help you figure it out. You have to figure it out. Um, and never say no. Never say no. I have never turned down a game, Rock, ever. I've been called, I got called, I'll, I'll never forget, I, uh, and this is just one example, one of my, so my next boss up after, I, uh, one of my next bosses up, guy by the name of John Vasallo, he was the CP in, uh, in Charlotte, he got let go this year too, another just horrible casualty, sure. just a phenomenal CP, a wealth of a 23 years company, um, I'll never forget, so I was scheduled to do, I think SMU, American game, like SMU Tulsa uh-huh. on Saturday. Uh-huh. It's Monday night. I'm sitting at home uh, or it's Tuesday night. So I used to travel, usually travel on Thursdays. Uh-huh. He calls me Tuesday night and he says, hey, uh, an announcer can't do a game on Thursday. Can you do it? And it was an HBCU game. It's sort of like a black college university. Yes. Um, obviously, I'm white. Yeah. Usually the analyst is African-American. Right. And it was Jay Walker, who I'm good friends with. I've worked studio shows with Jay. Jay, I think that week was getting an award from Howard University. And just found out like last minute. So they needed to get an announcer. So he calls me. I said, absolutely, I'll do it. And it was it was like Texas Southern or someone. So I mean, you know, I prep as much as I can, but I'm on a plane. Boom, I'm doing an HBCU game Thursday night. And then I'm on a plane Friday for going to do my game on Saturday. So you don't say no. You don't get scared. Um, you know, and if you're a play-by-play guy, I'm not. But if you are and they say, hey, can you do field hockey? And you're like, I don't even know what field hockey looks like. You say yes, and you go figure it out. You know, you get on YouTube and you figure it out. You just don't say no because not to get religious or spiritual, you know, when, when, when God opens a window or opens a door, you better get through it or else it's going to shut. You grab that opportunity. Grab the opportunity. You got it. And if you, and if you, if you mess it up, you mess it up. You do your best you can. There but you prepare, go. Prepare. That's the other thing I tell people. You got to prepare. So people ask me all the time. So I would work a full detective load, multiple cases. And towards the end of my career, I was a violent crimes detective. So serious cases. And I, and I, and I, and then we, Yahoo and Eric Adelson wrote a really nice piece about me. And my wife read all the comments. I'm like, don't read the comments. 
And then you got people, oh, taxpayer dollars. The guy's a jerk. He's he's not investigating no, his cases. No. Believe me, no. I investigated my cases. Um, I would, pro- on an average week, 10 to 12 hours is the prep I would do and watching video, talking, interviews. And and that's what I found for me is my sweet spot. And that's pretty much still what I do now. It's a, I don't know what to do now that I don't have uh, detective work. It's It's crazy. Um, of course, this last year with COVID was just nuts. Sure, um, sure. But yeah, I tell people you got to prepare, you got to be ready, you know. So uh, it's it's really been a blessing. And so yeah, and so I moved my way up through the ESPN three ladder, if you will. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, I am now a full fledged uh, employee under contract. I work for Disney. Congratulations! Um, so I'm under contract, and yes, I am. I don't have a big contract. Um, so my contract's up this year. Will I be renewed? I hope so. I'm anticipating I will be. I'm sure you will. The world's changed. You never know. Um, but uh, I'm anticipating a huge year in college football. Yes. Pack stadiums. Yes. So I- I'm ready to go. So it's been, uh, I feel blessed on everything I've I've ha- done and accomplished. And I will keep working hard and keep progressing and, and try to keep moving up. I can't thank you enough. And I'll tell you, this is one of the nicest locations that I've been able to tape this podcast. We are in his sprawling backyard of how many acres? So is almost it? five acres, a little short of five acres. Five acres. There's nothing better. You, you're healthy. You, 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 you feel blessed. Well, right? and I'm going to the golf course after this because that's <laughs> that's what I do. Uh, nice. I golf. And so I don't know if you noticed. So in the, the gate when you came in. So I, I affectionately named this place the Gridiron Ranch. I saw that on the Because gates. if it wasn't for my playing days and for my broadcasting, uh, I wouldn't have this house. Isn't that awesome? So this was kind of a dream of my wife and I. It's more mine than my wife's. I love the property. She wasn't sold on it in the beginning. Uh, we have five dogs. Uh, <laughs> so they, just, they just go, right? And uh, so, yeah, gorgeous. we love it. It's peaceful. Um, it's and no, I don't cut the grass. I hire someone <laughs> to cut it. It takes about three hours. So. <laughs> Listen, best of luck this college football season. And thanks so much, Rini, for Rock. taking the time. Awesome. Thank you for coming and visiting with me. And anytime you want to chat, I'm here. You know, I was honored to uh, to do that in his backyard and actually to go. That, that's the one thing. And Jericho, Chris Jericho, the, the famous wrestler and rock star and whoever, whatever he does, he turns it turns to gold. He, he is driven. And uh, and that's that's one of my bucket lists to get him on here. That's my bucket list. I interviewed him and did a TV piece on him a couple of years ago. And it was like the most downloaded, most clicked on demand thing ever at the uh, station TV station that I was at. It was only like a five minute thing. But anyway, Jericho had a really good point. He was talking with Steve Austin, Stone Cold Steve Austin for you wrestling fans. And they were talking about podcasting. And, and you know, Jericho said, am I that guy now where you meet somebody, you met somebody on a red carpet, and he's like, hey, man, you got to do my podcast. Like, well, you got to do my podcast. You know, and Stone Cold Steve Austin said there's Bailey, a, a, a wrestler in WWE, female wrestler. And the third time that she's done her podcast, and after it was done, she goes, okay, that was great. Next time, can we just hang out? You know, am, 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 I, am I that guy now? If it's somebody that I know that is an A-lister in the world of sports or entertainment, hey, man, can you do my podcast? I do have a big one taping this week. So I'll wait till I get it in the can and then promote it. And that would be next week's guest. It's a big, big, big one. So I'm pumped about that.
but I love being able to do this because I go to my guests and I meet them somewhere. I go to their wherever they're maybe they have a facility where they work or to their home. And Rini invited me to his home. Beautiful eight acres, eight acres in his backyard. I'm like, what's that building back there? Oh, that's uh, like a mother-in-law suite. And da, 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 da. Wow, that property back there, that's as nice almost as my home. And just to be able to sit out there, and it was great. There was a lot of cars in the driveway, and his daughter had just graduated high school, and she had some friends. They had had a little party the night before, and here are the kids that stayed over. And I met him one-on-one. As a matter of fact, his daughter actually took the picture of us that I posted on social media and they all seem like good kids, you know, 17 years old, 18 years old and they had stayed over and he was funny. He's like, I just, oh my God, I just went to my, my room last night and I went to my bed and he's like, they got to clean up some stuff over there. I hope I, I won't end up cleaning it up. But uh, I heard him tell him, make sure you clean up some stuff over there. But just a good guy. He's a good dad. He's a family man. And he was able to balance both working full time as a police detective in, in, in the, on the force, and then also flying out and doing uh, college football. But you can tell when you talk college football, I mean, his eyes just light up. All right, what do I got for you? Oh, I mentioned this at the top of the uh, podcast. So, Tebow, I thought there was no way in hell that Tebow was actually going to be able to make it. I mean, he's 33. Isn't he going to be 34? 33, 34 years old. Never played tight end. And you're going to try to make it on the NFL level, the top level, the top level. Picture you in your field, whatever you do, the best of the best in the world at your field. And then you're going to go into... That field, you do something different and you're going to, in the later stages of your career, you're going to try something new and try to be as good as they are at the best of what they do in the world. Like it's almost impossible as a tight end, 33, 34 years old. He was trying that baseball. I, you know, I give him credit. He's a great human being. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I've had so many people tell me, oh, it's all about just selling tickets, selling let me tell you, the majority of money that the NFL teams get, they get it from these TV deals. And like I say, I have someone fairly close to me that's working in the office next to Roger Goodell at Park Avenue in the NFL. He's got that high of a position. I don't want to say his name or anything like that. I'm not going to tell any inside, inside, inside. But I, I, I kind of can tell you this, that look for the NFL and most of these leagues. They're going to be doing more and more streaming combined with some network stuff. I gave you a little tip. If you got DirecTV, you got two more years on the NFL uh, deal that they have, and then it's bye-bye DirecTV. So you got another two years of your DirecTV, and then if you're an NFL fan, forget about it. If you notice, like this year with the Amazon Prime, uh, just just you know, be aware of it. But my point is, Yes, he's going to sell a couple more tickets. He's going to sell some tickets up in Jacksonville if he makes the roster. Yeah, yeah. Will he sell merchandise? Yeah, he will. But if Urban Meyer doesn't win, all right, if they suck, Urban Meyer's going to lose his job. 
Urban Meyer's job's on his on the line. Urban Meyer has won wherever he has gone. He believes that he wants to have Tebow on his team because Tebow's a winner. Yes, he is friends with him, but he's seen what he did in college. But the bottom line in all this is the Jacksonville Jaguars got to win. Oh, is it publicity? Yeah. Yeah, it's publicity. But Shot Khan, the owner, uh, Jacksonville Jaguars fans, if they suck, if they win four games this year and they win five the next year, and then they win six, and then they win three. I don't even know if he'll get that long. He's going to be gone. So he's got to have the best guys on. This is the NFL. Their money is coming from the the, the rights, uh, TV rights, all that. Yeah, it's a part of it. So it's not just for publicity. They don't publicity. All right, yeah, you're, you're, you're getting people talking about Tebow now, but you go to week number eight of the, uh, the season, and you've only won one game. And it's looking bad. Tebow as a, as a backup tight end, that's not that big of a thing. I'm telling you, right now it is because it's just, we're, here we are in June, just starting June. We're way, in the summer, starting the summer now, Memorial Day holiday. So, but, but the fact that Tebow basically will be the third tight end on the Jacksonville Jaguars if he makes the team. Now, normally you got to play special teams if you're the third tight end. He's he's trying to learn this, but he may be used in these goal line packages. They may use him even to throw a pass or to roll out or to, uh, you know, there's some things that they can do with him. And uh, I wouldn't put it past. I wouldn't, you know, and he is a hard worker and all this. And there's a chance that he might make this team where I didn't think that it was possible at all. Here's one more thing that I'm really going to be watching from this NFL season. I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the New Orleans Saints and Jameis Winston and Taysom Hill and with Drew Brees retiring. Now, I did a little bit of research. And if you think that they were caught off guard you know, Sean Payton's a very smart football man, okay? going They have been preparing for this for the last couple of years. In 2017, they were one pick away from drafting Patrick Mahomes. He went the pick before the Saints. They real, Sean Payton wanted Patrick Mahomes. Months later, a little down the line, he ends up getting Taysom Hill, out of nowhere, it's not like it. They, you know, drafted him. You know, I mean, they wanted Baker Mayfield too. It just didn't work out. But they had been looking at this, and now that's why. So last year's like, you know what, Jameis Winston is here. I think I'll take a chance on Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston does work very hard. He does work very hard. The one of the places where he has worked out the last couple of years, and we're located, by the way, here in Tampa Bay. I know the people that run the place, and Jameis Winston will get in real early and really work out hard. I'm talking like about four, like that 6 a.m. So he puts in the time. He is a good athlete. He really is. I, 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 I'm not a believer. I, I'm not a believer that he is going to be why he's going to lead them to the promised land. I'm st- I'm just not a believer. Taysom Hill is good. He's interesting. He's a dual threat. 
Maybe he can do it. I don't think Sean Payton has his quarterback of the future right now in New Orleans. But I'll tell you, it's going to be very, very interesting. And it's almost like to the... um, You know how I told you at the beginning of this podcast, before the interview, we always revert back. Isn't it funny? I noticed, like I, you know, I told you about my gallbladder operation and I almost didn't make it. And it was really, really scary. And all told after the pandemic and gallbladder, I lost like 28 pounds. And I'm like, wow, I've never been this thin. And then I was a little too thin. And then boom, boom. And I eat. Like, I don't eat big meals, but I eat more times a day. And uh, But I noticed, like, this past week or two, eating a little bit more, going back to uh, some fries over here. And then I got on the scale at Publix, which is our supermarket down here. And I'm like, oh, that's hmm, three more pounds since last week. Am I inching back up? But you know what I'm saying? It's almost like the same thing now. Shaking hands. I never thought I'd shake hands again. We're seeing full stadiums. We're seeing concert tours, you know. People are going back. I told you guys what David Letterman once said. David Letterman had either quadruple or, but uh, you know, the bypass. And he, and he cut out all caffeine. And he was doing drinking decaf coffee after he made his comeback. And then he slowly started going. Go, I think I'm going to try some caffeinated again. You know what? Oh, that tastes good. You know what? I'm going to have my cup of coffee. Oh, no, I'm going to have two. You know, and it's almost like with Jameis Winston. He is a turnover machine. He can work on it. He can, he can try, he can do mental reps and all that, but when you are in the heat of battle in a game, you end up always kind of like reverting back to what you once did. It was the same thing with Tebow. He worked one off season when he was going to the Jets on trying to change his throwing motion, get rid of the ball quicker, quicker, quicker. Oh, and he went through all these the drills and drills and drills and drills and then in practice and then he gets in a game and he ends up like going back again to the same motion. I mean, we're, 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 we're creatures of habit. You know, we I, I, we really, really are. All right. Now, when this is playing, this is the weekend of, I believe, the Logan Paul Floyd Mayweather fight. I don't think this one is generating near as much interest as Jake Paul and Ben Askren for some reason. And Logan Paul and Jake Paul both the other day said that Floyd Mayweather, 50 and 0, Perhaps one of the greatest pound for pound boxers ever, 50 and 0. And Logan Paul and Jake Paul said, Floyd Mayweather needs us more than we need him. And you know what? To bring eyeballs and to bring pay per view clicks, uh, they're probably right. And the reason why I'm bringing this up, if you've got kids or even grandkids or nieces, nephews, YouTube is humongous. And one of my upcoming guests that I just taped this past week, he is a restaurateur, very successful now, very, very successful, fine dining. He was an NFL lineman. He played in the NFL. And we we finished taping the podcast and we started talking somehow because I got kids, he's got kids, and we'd send something about YouTube and he goes, oh, oh. His son said to him, Dad, look at Jake Paul, Logan Paul. They make millions of dollars on YouTube. 
And he's like, yeah, he tried to explain them. Yeah, but I know they were fighting. They're fighting for money only. It's not really for belts and da da da. Showtime just signed, by the way, Jake Paul. I don't know if you saw that. He's going to have to start fighting legitimate. I mean, legitimate boxers. But anyway, I digress. And I, and 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 the son of this former NFL player was like, look how much money the Jake Paul and Logan Paul make. They make it on YouTube. You know, and he's and that's the thing you're kind of fighting. You know, your 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 kids. You're like, no, nah, education still is important. Not everybody, and that's the other thing. I uh, a, a good friend of mine that knows this business. Like, it's the top fifteen twenty percent, like doing podcasts that are making the dough. You know, it looks like it's easy, but to generate a big, 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 big audience to get a lot of clicks, it's, there's a lot more to it. You know, but anyway, it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out down the road. This interest with the the YouTubers, Logan Paul and Jake Paul. Jake Paul did say, I kind of agree with him. He said MMA was kicking boxing's ass. And now because Jake Paul and people, the eyeballs, everybody's talking about boxing compared to MMA. You know, that that's for another podcast. You know, the growth as MMA and UFC, has it peaked, you know? Is it because of Dana White? There's pros and cons. Dana White has brought it to this point. Will UFC ever get any bigger? Will boxing ever, you know, come back besides the pulse? Oh, and if you, if you're a little bit older, maybe close to my age, and you remember Mike Tyson? Check out the documentary that is running on Tuesday nights, and I'm sure it's available online whenever you are listening to this. I forget the name of it. It's my, type in Mike Tyson doc or documentary. Oh, my God. I lived through this. I was a young reporter covering big fights in Atlantic City. I think I told you guys a story about Donald Trump when he came. He remember when he was getting into the fight game and I saw, oh, my God, I lived through this interviewing Tyson, Jimmy Jacobs. Uh, I was wondering why Kevin Rooney wasn't I know there was bad blood and a fallout Kevin Rooney his trainer I was wondering why he wasn't on the uh in this documentary you know Teddy Atlas who's on ESPN now he was in it and then he uh, I, I there was some stuff I didn't even know but it was just taking me back but if you were a Tyson fan or just even boxing fan just a little bit and oh my god it is so good Mike Tyson documentary. Check it out. Uh, What else do I want to mention? Oh, also coming up later this month on the podcast, I will be going down to Lakewood Ranch. uh, That's close to the Sarasota area and sitting down with the legendary Dick Vitale. It's awesome, baby. This guy has got more energy at 80. I think he's 82 years old or so. Uh, oh, my God. And, you know, when I text him, he says, I'm going to Hawaii Rock. You know, he came off of his he, he, his goal is to find a cure 
for can to beat cancer, specifically childhood cancer, pediatric cancer. And I've seen it firsthand. He is the real deal. He puts all of his passion into that. And it's just incredible. But that's another one that's upcoming. So stay tuned for that. Once he gets back, right now he is on a trip to Maui with his family. He, they celebrated, he and his wife celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. 5 0. How about that? 50 years. And he goes, Rock, as soon as I come back, we'll do it. But I'm going to Hawaii, and I've been following him on his social media. He loves to take pictures. He does a motivational tip of the day. Where does he get this much energy? 80-some years old, and he's still working, and he, he hasn't really lost it. You know, there's some guys when they get, it's, it's past their time, and their delivery is slower. They sound older, you know. Dick Vitale still got it, man. He is still coming at it strong. All righty. Anything else that I wanted to get into? No. You know, we're, we're well into the playoffs now. The, we're in the next round now of the NHL, the NBA playoffs. I do love. Now, listen, I didn't really grow up a huge hockey fan. I was more basketball. NBA in college. I grew up in New Jersey, northern New Jersey. I was basketball. I was baseball. I was football. And then I was hockey. And but not that was like my number four sport. And I play it eh, a little bit here and there on ponds, frozen ponds in New Jersey. Not much. It was fun. But it wasn't like I'm you know, that I grew up like a student of the game. Uh, but I will tell you this when when there's something different about playoff hockey the intensity now the intensity goes up for all sports we're also baseball nba nfl obviously but with the hockey i can't explain it and it's just if you get an opportunity to go in arena playoff hockey oh my god there is nothing like it but like i said i think because of the pandemic and we were at, you know, there was a sports shut down. And then when you did see the sports coming back, and I've been to a couple of those games where there were no fans and the pumped in noise and just, it was dead. It was like a scrimmage. It was. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I, 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 I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. But now with the fans, how about the Indianapolis 500 this past weekend? With all those fans, I just heard IndyCar driver Tony Kanaan saying that what it is like to have over 100,000 fans in the stands. He said it was funny. This past week, he jumped out of his car and there was a bunch of fans around and he looked and he was like, whoa, I don't have my Sharpie with me. Because during the pandemic, there were no fans. He wasn't doing any signing of any autographs. And he laughed and he was like, oh, I got to use their pens or I don't have my Sharpie. Like, I didn't even realize that. Oh, like someone of that stature, they carry a Sharpie. You carry a Sharpie with you in your car. Didn't even think of that. But he goes, it was so strange. I'm like, oh, I'm not used to doing autographs. Like I'm, like I'm saying, guys, we're, we're, we are getting there. You know, I'm, uh, we really are getting there. And I'm noticing it, and I'm feeling good, and I just cannot wait. And I'm really gearing up 
for football season. I think once we hit this, we get past this summer, you do what you do with your family if you can take your vacation. You just enjoy the hell out of the summer. And can you imagine when it gets to August? Actually, when we get to the end of July and the training camps start. Now, I'm going to find out. I'll let you know. As soon as I know, the NFL is still trying to figure it out. Like with fans, how many fans? Will they allow some fans at the training camp? How's that going to work? You know, it's a day-to-day, week-to-week process, but it's just I'm feeling normal and more normal again, and I know you are too. Listen, thank you so much for listening to this Rini and Golier, thank you so much. I'm glad you were able to retire as a young man. How cool is that, huh? And we'll be looking for you on ESPN with college football. And these playoffs are going on. And we got our baseball going on. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy as can be. I'm going to do a little bit more homework. I don't have any new information. And so I want to bring you new stuff. But with the whole stadium saga, the Oakland A's in baseball, the Tampa Bay Rays in Tampa Bay, and the stories more and more that's coming out. If you didn't hear the Rays president, Brian Ald, Uh, reportedly, allegedly, according to a Tampa City Councilman, Charlie Miranda, mentioned if it doesn't work out here, Nashville would be the place where the Rays would go. And then I did a little bit of research this week because I had followed. It's called the Music City Baseball Group in Nashville. Nashville is one of the cities that has been trying to get an expansion team. But you see, the thing is, it's so it's so costly to get an expansion team. You got to pay so much money. If you can get an established team to come over, it's more doable. But I mean, they still don't have a new stadium in Nashville. A lot of these, believe me, I I honestly think if Stu Sternberg, the owner of the Rays, if he had, if he already had a stadium waiting for him somewhere, that he has told me. Now I I haven't talked to Stu in a while, but Stu has told me several times, both on tape and 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 off. I will not move the team. I could sell it. To someone if I feel that I couldn't make it here and he still has that plan and I don't believe that's ever going to come to fruition half the time in Tampa Bay half the time in Montreal I don't see it that's my personal feeling and you know I was thinking back because with the news this week wow wow the stadium issue again we are no further along in Tampa Bay and really even in Oakland of having a new stadium for the baseball team no further along Over the last 14, 15 years, I did a special on TV. Had to be 12, 13 years ago. We brought in journalists from the area. And what we did was we did an hour special. And each one of us would go to a location in Tampa Bay. I was in out of uh, Upper Pinellas, Palm Harbor. We had somebody from Lakeland. We had someone from downtown Tampa. We had someone from, and we all set our clocks. And I think we left at 5.30 maybe, or was it six o'clock? You know, kind of estimating when, if you're going to go to a ball game on a weeknight and just all, we documented it. We shot video and what time we would get to the stadium. I mean, Sarasota, and and it was like most of us all got there before first pitch. 
Yeah, you're going to have some traffic. Any city that you go in that's a major league city, you're going to have to deal with some traffic. There's no doubt about it. But, I mean, that special that we did had to be 12, 15 years ago, and we are no further along now in the whole process. But I'm going to do some more research. I'm going to do some digging, see what I can find out, and uh, and I'll bring it to you here on the podcast. All right, until next, until next week. It drops every Tuesday. Wherever you find your podcast, obviously you found me. Tell your friends, give me a review, whatever you got to do, support. I appreciate it. Another edition in the books. Have a great week. This is, has been, will continue to be. (laughs) The Rock stops here. This week on Crush Performance, episode three of the Crush Brain Game, Sleep and Your Brain. Sleep is one of the most powerful influencers on your brain function and health. You may think you're resting, but when you sleep, your brain is in a hyper mode, repairing itself, clearing toxins and waste, building memories, and reinforcing learning by getting rid of all the garbage you've accumulated over the day and locking in the important stuff. This week, we visit with crush favorite Dr. Charles Samuels from the Center for Sleep and Human Performance to discuss sleep science, the keys to getting good sleep, the impact of broken sleep, and the influence of sleep on your brain. It's the Crush Brain Game on this week's episode of Crush Performance. Crush Performance with Jeff Cruschel can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.